Okay, we're recording. Um, so first, let me review the class from last week. So uh, we were talking about cessationism versus uh, continuationism. So continuationism is the viewpoint that all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we see in the book of Acts, particularly uh, prophecy, tongues, and miraculous healings, continue today. So that's continuationism. Cessationism is the viewpoint that um, these extraordinary gifts have ceased with the uh, the end of the apostolic age. And so uh, <coughs> a continuationism is a very intuitive argument because there is no single Bible verse that states these that singles out the gifts and singles out the gifts and saying that they have ceased. Um, and so where do we get cessationism? And uh, cessationism <clears throat> is basically an argument from redemptive history. So this is a very important concept. We're doing a, a quick review before we jump into the, um, the new material. So redemptive history, right? Or the history, uh, uh, the story of salvation. So redemptive history are unique, um, unrepeatable events in the story of salvation uh, that was um, intended to to um, for, is it's for our salvation, but it's not a, an ongoing, r- normal, routine ministry, right? So you have the Old Testament, you have uh, the Exodus, you have ac- exile. Uh, the building of the temple, the destruction of the temple, all these things we're not supposed to replicate. Um, and then you have the ministry of Jesus, his death and resurrection, and then you have the apostles, the uh, the, the book of Acts and the starting of the early church. So let me just draw a, a redemptive history, a timeline. Here's the Old Testament, here's the ministry of Jesus, okay, and the ministry of the apostles. And then you have ongoing church ministry. So, the cessationist argument is that the Old Testament, uh, the ministry of Jesus, and the ministry of the apostles is all part of redemptive history. Non-repeatable, unique. And with the apostles, you have Signs and wonders, you have prophecy, um, tongues, and you have miraculous healings. And because these are uniquely associated and connected with the apostles, um, they have ceased with their death. Um, We talked about last week uh, two key verses. There are really no proof texts of cessationism. You really need to understand this whole concept of redemptive history and all of the Bible. But uh, if I could cite two key um, proof texts, it would be Ephesians 2.20. It's in your handout. <coughs> Ephesians 2.20 says, where is it? <coughs> that uh, God built the church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, right? So the apostles are the foundation of the church. 
the the concept of of a foundation is an architectural metaphor, um, and there's only one foundation. It's not an ongoing, repeated layer. So the very idea that the apostles and prophets are found uh, is the foundation of the church gets to this whole idea of redemptive history, right? Unique, non-repeatable. The second key verse would be uh, 2 Corinthians 12.12. Uh, 12. Um, it talks about signs and wonders of an apostle. This is also in your, um, in your uh, handout. So, if there are signs and wonders of a true apostle, um, that implies that uh, if there are no apostles, then those signs and wonders have ceased. So something has ceased. What exactly is that? And uh, I've been trying to demonstrate that it's prophecies, tongues, and miraculous healings. Um, and let me just say one more quickly about a theology of apostleship. To be an apostle, you have to be personally commissioned by Jesus. This this is um, marks it different from, uh, for example, elders um, or deacons were not personally commissioned by Jesus. Um, they had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. And accordingly, because they've been sent by Jesus, they're eyewitnesses of the resurrection, they have authority over the church, over the starting of the church, laying down its doctrine and practice, okay? Um, any questions about the review before we get to, into the new material? Okay. So let's go to, what page would it be? Like I think the third page, where it says, Apostleship is a revelatory office. Can you guys find that section? So last week um, we talked about how signs and wonders are for attestation purposes, meaning they attest to or they confirm, they verify the ministry of the apostles. Um, and then we talked also about how the uh, Spirit, uh, the promise that Jesus gave um, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, um, which is that uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. So now we're going to talk about another unique aspect of apostleship, which is that it's an office of revelation. Uh, let's, let me read to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This shows us that God spoke uniquely through the apostles. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery, he's talking here about the gospel, the mystery of Christ, the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy, prof- holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So here, God is revealing um, the mystery of Christ, uh, the mystery of the gospel, in a, in, a, in a unique way that was unknown in the Old Testament through his apostles. 
And therefore, it's through the apostles that we have uh, the writing of the New Testament. Um, not all the apostles wrote a New Testament book, and not all the New Testament books were written by the apostles, but it's the apostolic um, eyewitness authority, so that, for example, you have an, uh, a, a New Testament writer like Luke, and Luke says, I've talked to the apostles, right? I'm receiving the teaching of the apostles. Now, we believe that the New Testament is closed, meaning it isn't ongoing. Revelation isn't continuing. There are only 27 books in the New Testament. Now, that's cessationism. The New Testament has ceased to continue to be written. Where do we get that? Where is the Bible verse in the New Testament that states the New Testament is closed, it has ceased, it's continuing on writing? There is no verse. Where do we get that? We infer it by logic through the doctrine of apostleship. There are no more living eyewitnesses to the resurrection. So with the first generation... And when all of the writings were put down in that first generation, it's over. It's closed. Does that make sense? So that's one of the arguments I've been trying to make, which is that everyone already inherently believes in partial cessationism. It's just a question of what, how much has ceased. And once you've already conceded that apostleship has ceased, once you've already conceded that the New Testament has ceased, well then you're already halfway there. You just have to go a little bit further along the journey. All right. Um, let me read you Acts chapter 2, verse 42. <clears throat> this is the description of the early church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So notice that the gospel is called the, uh, the teaching of the apostles. And the reason for this is not that the apostles happened to teach the gospel like so many others, but rather that the apostles uniquely proclaimed the gospel so that the gospel is the message of the apostles. And this is why the apostles are not being egoistic or self-absorbed when they're constantly telling uh, the New Testament believers to, to believe and listen to their personal teaching. For example, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul chastises the Galatian Christians um, for, not, uh, for abandoning the gospel that I preach. That's what he says. Why are you abandoning the gospel that I preached? Now, why does Paul make it so personal? Um, and the answer is because Paul is an apostle, right? It's, it has to do with his office. It would sound kind of egoistic and pomp, uh, pompous if I kept saying to you, you have to listen to Michael's teaching, right? Uh, I want you all to be devoted to Michael's teaching. That, why am I drawing attention to myself? I'm not. I mean, I mean, that would be wrong, right? I would draw your attention to the apostles' teaching. Because they're the ones who received revelation. They're the authorized teachers. Let me uh, point you to Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, listen to this, for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So let's look at this language of once for all. Once for all. What does that imply? That implies redemptive history because it's foundational, right? Um, the revelation that was given to the apostles is not an ongoing thing. It's not a regular everyday activity, but it was given uniquely to the apostles um, as a foundation of the church. And therefore, with the death of the apostles, revelation has ceased. Does that make sense? 
Um, and then I'm going to argue that prophecy and tongues are instruments of revelation. Next, but any questions? Yes, Young. This might tie into previous weeks. Um, yeah. Yes. Because it was commissioned by Jesus. Yes. They also said that some books of the New Testament weren't written by apostles. That's right. So the books that weren't written by apostles, how do they have authority over us today? Yeah, so <clears throat> theologians talk about the apostolic circle. So Luke was a companion of Paul. Uh, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, um, he probably received it from Peter, but we don't even have to necessarily speculate. Um, the New Testament documents are all written under the authority of the apostles, um, through the witness of the apostles, through the teachings of the apostles. Um, and how do we know that? So that's a whole long another discussion about the New Testament canon. But we know that because all God's people accepted it. So that's why all the 27 books have authority, because they were all commonly accepted by the New Testament. But then that's a whole another class on Scripture. Um, <clears throat> But um, <coughs> let me say this, one more thing about the apostles. The apostles uniquely have authority. Remember, uh, Paul said to uh, Peter, um, on you I'm going to build, you're the rock on which I'm going to build the church. So again, that, there's that imagery again of foundation. Um, the apostles are the unique, unique, you know, foundational layer on which everything else is built. And so therefore... Um, this argument of cessationism is is uniquely tied. It's basically a theology of apostleship. Anyways, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Any other questions? questions? Yes. So I understand that apostles had those gifts of prophecy, tongues, and miracles. No, the whole so so the apostolic age. So Barnabas, for example, also you know con, you know uh, participated. Barnabas was not an apostle, mm-hmm. but Barnabas participated in these miraculous healings and so forth. And so like when the when these other non-apostles were practicing these um, miraculous signs and wonders, yeah. were those considered revelatory? Um, revelation is uniquely through the apostles. They're the original eyewitnesses, right? And then Barnabas, and then you have um, all these other people going forth and doing, repeating, and carrying on the ministry of the apostles. But it was all part of the same age. It's all part of the same like period of ministry. So the book of Acts, basically. So the point I'm making is not that only apostles can do these things, but it's more like only the apostolic age can do these things, and it's the apostolic age because it's under the authority of the apostles. Once the last apostle died, which we believe was John, it ended. Does that answer your question, or are you going uh, somewhere? Yeah, there, there's more, but I want to hear the rest of your argument. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, where are we? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping administration, and various kinds of tongues. So continuationists will point to a verse like this. And say, do you see how it's all mixed, mixed smushed, right? Um, there's apostles and prophets, which you claim has ended. There's teachers, though. There's gifts of helping and administration. These things, everyone agrees, continues. And there isn't a distinction, right? So how do we make this distinction? And I would argue, how do we make a distinction about the apostles, right? Virtually all people acknowledge 
that apostleship has ended. So I will give credit to some really consistent continuationists. If you're truly a consistent continuationist, you should say we're still here, the book of Acts. There's still apostles, and there are continuationists who argue for that. But now I wonder how did they see the, the eyewitness, how were they witnesses of the resurrection? But, but the point I'm trying to make is, um, when you look, when you read the New Testament, it's not systematized for us, right? They're not gonna like, demarcate certain gifts and say these have ceased. It's all mixed up together and we have to infer it through logic, which hopefully I will unpack with some skill. Um, Alright, let me go on to the next one. So it's not just uh, apostles, but also prophecy is a gift of revelation. Prophets are agents of revelation. So I read this to you before, but let me read it again. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, 19-21. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, listen to this, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So prophets, uh, apostles and prophets are foundational. If you're a foundational office, you've ceased once the foundation has been built. Ephesians 3, 4, 4 and 5, I read this last week as well. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of, of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Right? So the prophets are agents of revelation. Second Peter 3, 1 verses 3 to 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So both prophets and apostles receive revelation. They receive predictions and commandments, right? They're linked offices. So what's the counter-argument of continuationism? Um, For the sake of time, I'm just going to focus on one, which is that um, the argument about prophets that continuationists will make is that uh, Ephesians 2.20, that prophets are the foundation, is talking about prophets with a capital P. Um, like what the prophets that you see in the Old Testament, right? Thus saith the Lord. Their word is authoritative. Um, but the New Testament talks about prophets with a lowercase p, um, and these do not have the stature of Isaiah or Nathan or Elijah, uh, but rather they're fallible and they make mistakes. And <clears throat> this lower level prophecy is where people have like impressions. Um, they, ha- they feel like God is leading them to something or bringing up into their mind. This is the argument <clears throat> that Wayne Grudem makes, for example. I, re- I respect Wayne Grudem a great deal. So let me emphasize again, this is an in-house debate among brothers, right? We all love each other. Um, so here's my response to that. Lowercase prophets, fallible prophets, which is, where do we see that in Scripture? <laughs> right? Um, and if it's simply that God is bringing things to your mind and it's not authoritative and it's if it's not infallible, then why would you even label it prophecy? Why can't you just say, I'm, I sense God is leading me in this direction? I think it's a very valid way to, to talk. But if you say, I have a prophecy, <laughs> then I feel like, not I feel, but then the standard is much higher. 
Um, and there are strong penalties for false prophets. Um, are you willing to subject yourself to those standards? Um, the proof text that Wayne Grudem cites is 1 Corinthians 14.29. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> let two or three prophets speak, and let, o- let the others weigh what is said. So, he argues that prophecy must be subjected to error, otherwise why are, why are we supposed to weigh what is said? And my answer to that is that everything that is authoritative coming from God should still be weighed. So the example I would give is Acts 17, um, the Bereans. The apostles preached the gospel and the Bereans weighed and tested what was said. That doesn't mean the apostles can make mistakes. It just means even the apostles, whatever they teach, they, you still need to make sure that it conforms and, and, and fits with what God has already spoken, right? So we're all supposed to do this. We're supposed to test prophecies, test revelation, but that doesn't mean prophecies can can make mistakes. And the other thing is the, the reason why we're supposed to weigh is 1 John 4, 1, the possibility of false prophets. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So again, let's talk about false prophecy. What are false prophets? False prophets are people who come into the church and say, I'm a prophet. I have a word from God. But they don't. Out of their own, you know, ego or selfish desires or maybe, you know, deceived or driven by Satan, they're trying to tell you something that comes from God when it doesn't. And so, we need to be very, very careful that we're not sort of falling into soft false prophecy. Prophecy is a very high and elevated thing. Um, this is why I think this is why I can say prophecy has ended. Because prophecy is again the foundation of the, of the early church, but also the standard is incredibly high. If you want to stand with Elijah and Nathan and, and Isaiah, then I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to have a lot of skepticism and then I'm going to prepare the penalty if I discover that you're a false prophet, um, which is severe. Um, let me say one more thing. Um, I think the way continuationists talk about prophecy is often for personal benefit. So they'll say, oh, I have a prophecy about who you're going to marry. Or, I, oh, I have a prophecy about like you're gonna, you're, something's going to happen to your job, your, your workplace. And I think that really um, b- uh, minimizes prophecy. Whenever you see prophecy in the Old and New Testament, it's about epic, redemptive historical events. It's never about personal benefit issues. And I think it also sidelines scripture. You have 2 Timothy 3, 16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Scripture is all we need. And I think a lot of times people want prophecy because they don't, scripture is not enough for them. They want clear guidance for their life and it's becoming like tarot cards then. Um, yes? Yeah. Where it talks about um, you know, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them um, to observe all that I've commanded you. Mm. It's not all that I will continue to command you. Yes. It's, it's already there. there yeah. One it's once for all, right? We we have we have everything that we need for life. And if scripture doesn't tell you which job to take, 
That's because God wants you to use discernment and wisdom and prayer and discussion and community, and God's not going to give you a specific revelation. Yeah. Um, let me make a, a. No, I did. I did make that point. All right. Any questions on prophecy? Yes, Eugene. Um, is prophecy necessarily limited to just the prediction of future events? No. Because we use it oftentimes in that context. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've always understood it to be the ability to declare God's word. Yes. Directly from God or what He said. Yeah. So in that sense, people sometimes ask, "What's the difference between an apostle and a prophet?" They're very closely linked. Yeah. Or I ask a different question: What's the difference at different levels of an of a prophet and a pastor or a teacher? Mm. Speaking God's word, yeah. So, so there's, there's, there's me. I would answer there's mediation. So, a prophet receives direct word from God. Mm. Mm. I could say the exact same thing a prophet says, but I say, let's read Isaiah, right? (laughs) Um, So, it's it's, the mediation is very important. I'm not speaking on my, you know, my personal received authority. Mm. I'm speaking from the authority of Scripture. Did did you have a follow up comment? No. Okay. Uh, any other questions on prof? Yes, uh, Matt. Oh, good memory. Um, so about prophecy, uh, I thought the prophecy uh, when Paul's talking in First Corinthians, he's talking to the entire Corinthian church. Right? Mm-hmm. And so when he's telling that he is in, in chapter fourteen, he's saying to uh, earnestly desire the spirit to give yeah. that you may prophecy. Yes, isn't he saying that he wants the entire church to be able to prophesy? No, because they're, because, uh, gifts and offices are connected. So not everyone has the gift of prophecy. Um, not everyone had the gift of miraculous healings and so forth. So he's talking to people who have those gifts, you know, pursue them. Or, or you're talking about earnestly seek. So, you know, I think receive and listen. And he's talking to the generation, the first generation of believers in which prophecy was prevalent. There were prophets all the time, you know, um, and so he's saying, don't quench them, don't squelch it, but use it for the blessing of others in the church. But that, but that instruction is only for the first generation, only for the apostolic age. Is that where you're going, Matt? Uh, yeah, so I guess the, uh, I had, I guess, two parts, which is, one, if, if you, let's say, if, you, if a spirit um, talks to you and, and you give a prophecy, yeah. does that automatically make you a prophet? And because, like, you know, or let's just say, because it's like, let's just say it's like a one-time thing, mm-hmm. right? So does that automatically make you a prophet just because you were able to prophesy once? Um, and then, like, the second question is, if everyone was able to prophesy, um, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it simply, and... and you're, so you're talking about First Corinthians 14? Let, let, me, let me go back and look at it. Yeah, I, I think I put it down here. Oh, so I have it on the very last page of the handout. First Corinthians fourteen thirty nine through 40. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Is that what you're talking about? I don't have a Bible with me. Uh, on the other hand, the one who to to oh yeah, yeah. So I'm going to talk about that. When I, I, I'm going to talk about that. 
But but I would say this: all of the commands not to quench the spirit, to pursue prophecy, and so forth, that's given to the first generation, the apostolic age. And I guess, as a cessationist, I would challenge any continuationist: where is there like? How do we know that that's supposed to be ongoing? Especially when we consider passages like Ephesians 2.20. You know, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. But we'll get there. We'll continue. All right. Uh, let's talk about tongues. This will be exciting. All right. So tongues. So um, the argument I want to make is, first of all, I want to narrow the gift. Um, tongues is the ability to, to use other languages. Okay. So, uh, this is a gift that was given at Pentecost to the early church. Acts chapter 2. Um, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire. Right, This is a kind of a, a sign of God, fire, and wind. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And look, and how is it that we here, each of us in his own native language. And then he lists like 20 languages, right? Um, let's go to ver- end of verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So let me just stop right, or let me finish. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So the Greek word tongue, glossa, just means language. <laughs> if you go to any Greek lexicon, Glossa means language, period. Um, and so that's the gift that was promised to the, to the uh, early church. Remember, the early church is supposed to be the witnesses of Christ to the ends of the earth. How are you going to get to the ends of the earth without some language skills, right? So it's fitting and it makes sense. Now, the continuationists and charismatics will argue there's a, there's a second element of tongues, which is it's an ecstatic prayer language, Right? Um, it's this special kind of nonsensical sounding prayer language that you can pray with. Um, and let me address that argument. The first thing I would say is this. Continuationists usually concede that the gift of languages has ceased. What well, we saw in Acts 2 has ceased, but the ecstatic prayer language continues. And again, I would argue, where is that in Scripture? How did you split the gift of tongues into two? And in, this, in the second, the third thing I would say is, how, if you can see that one part of the gift has ceased, then you've already given the logical ground to cessationism, right? That so something has ceased. Um, so, let, so let me show you the text that people cite for the ecstatic prayer language. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all, all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, have, but have not love, I am nothing. Right? So Paul talks about tongues of men and tongues of angels. 
right? And then let's continue on. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 4. By the way, 13 and 14, it's all one passage, right? Don't be fooled by the chapter split. But here Paul says, pursue love, right? He's continuing the theme of love. But earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. This is what Matt is talking about. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in tongue builds himself up, um, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So, doesn't that demonstrate that tongues is a prayer language? Right, it's the tongues of angels, and it's specific, Paul says in four, uh, chapter 14, you speak to God, not to men, and no one understands him. Sounds a lot like tongues as we see it today, right? And he utters mysteries. Sounds like Pentecostal practice. So let me provide my, my um, explanation for this. Again, in-house debate, right? We're all friends. Um, but you have to remember the context of 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. The, the context of 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 is rebuke. Very important that you understand that as the context. Paul is not saying, this is what the gifts are, and you're doing it. He's saying, you're abusing gifts. He's describing the gifts as they are being abused. We have to remember what gifts are. Gifts are never for selfish use, but always to be used in love. Gifts are never for yourself. It's always for the benefit of the church and for others. And so Paul is not describing tongues as it should be, but as it is abused by the uh, Corinthian Christians. And so when Paul says tongues of angels, he's being sarcastic. Just like when he says super apostles. There are no super apostles. The, the, the Corinthian believers were just like, they would just take whatever Paul taught them and they would just take it to the next level, right? They would take it to 11. And so when he says tongues of angels, he's talking about, he's being sarcastic about this exaggerated gift that they were doing it. And when he says tongues personally builds up the one who is gifted with tongues, he's not saying, oh, that's a correct way to use tongues. He's talking about this selfish practice where you use it for yourself. And I believe they were using this gift of speaking other languages, but they were using it for themselves to pray to God as a way to show off that they have this gift. Um... Yeah, so, so, so he's, so he's commending prophecy over, over tongues. That's right. Because prophecy has this outward element, but the way they were using tongues has this inward, inward, uh, development. But, but tongues should be outward. Huh? He specifically was using tongues in this, Yeah, and, and you'll see later, he actually diminishes prophecy as well. But we'll get to that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think a lot of times continuationists cite 13 and 14, 14 specifically, 1 Corinthians, and they're like, see, it, this was an early practice. Yeah, but it was an abusive, terrible practice. Um, okay. Uh, any questions on that before I, I go on? Yes. Wasn't like 
interpretation of tongues considered a spiritual gift? Yes. Um, and so, but if it's just a natural language, why do you need a spiritual gift to understand like some other language? So it's the it's it's the gift of being able to speak a language that you otherwise wouldn't or shouldn't have known, and then it's the gift of being able to translate that language when you otherwise shouldn't or wouldn't have known. So when it says like only speak in tongues if there's like you know somebody who can interpret it, it's either somebody who has a spiritual ability to speak another language or somebody. Who can just yeah, so I, I guess like, and here I admit I'm a little bit on the edge because I'm not fully sure I understand what was going on, and if you read a lot of the commentaries, I don't think a lot of people completely understand what's going on, but I think what was happening is you, in the early church. The first Corinthian, the Corinthian church particularly was super gifted. So you basically had like 30 language, people who had 30 languages. And it was cacophony. It was chaos. Because they were showing off these gifts that God had given them. And so Paul is rebuking them saying, you guys are using it for your own self-glory when it should be building up the whole church. And so he's sort of laying down like parameters. Okay, if you're gonna, use these languages, you know, if, you know, if we had somebody in our church who spoke like Tamil or something, and, and, and he, he just stood up and he's just always talking in Tamil, we're like, well, it's okay if you speak Tamil, but can you also give us a running interpretation or, I mean, I mean, a translation, yeah. I don't know if that helps. Michael, I thought the gift was also a little bit more beyond that, whereas I think it was in Acts chapter 2, where uh, the listeners of the gospel being preached were wondering, how is it that we each hear them in our own Hmm. Um, there was one person speaking, bringing the gospel, and yet many people from different languages are here hearing them. Hmm. So the one proclamation was being heard in multiple languages, which hmm. was a miraculous gift hmm. because it was for the purpose of the gospel being heard forth. That was it was it was it was a little bit beyond just being able to say it in their language in one language and therefore having kind of a spiritual interpreter, yeah, right. But actually being able to say it in multiple languages and being heard simultaneously. So that's that could be. I don't know, but that if if that's true too. Then it's still, we're still talking about natural languages, natural human languages, yeah. Uh, let me go on. Um, tongues is a foundation laying gift of revelation. So Paul goes on to explain what tongues should be. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 to 23. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Remember, he's still rebuking them, right? Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders, unbelievers enter, will they not say, you are all out of your minds? So what is he saying? He's saying the purpose of tongues is actually an outward gift. It's never an inward, self-serving gift. It's to proclaim the gospel. And a big part of tongues is actually to fulfill some judgment prophecy in Isaiah 28. He's quoting Isaiah 28 there, where um, they will hear the, 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 a foreign language, and that will cause them to break away from God and stumble. Um, and so the purpose of tongues is ultimately for evangelism. So I would like to see a continuation that's used tongues for evangelism. That's its purpose. Um, I will stop there. I had a whole bunch more stuff, but um, for the sake of time, I will skip. Did you want to go back to the question about prophecy on 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 uh, Matthew on uh, First Corinthians fourteen? Yeah. So, uh, so I guess uh, just to reiterate, um, if you pop 
I think office and gifts are linked. So if you are demonstrating um, prophecy, then yeah, you're a prophet. Well, I mean, so so let me let me let me let me reel that back. Okay. So King, so there's an example. I'm just thinking of an example right now. King Saul, right? Uh, one of the ways he knew he was the uh, anointed king of Israel is uh, he walked among the prophets and he was prophesying temporarily. So this gift of prophecy came upon him, right? Um, and so, so I guess yes, we can, we can separate to some degree. Although that was kind of an unusual situation. Mm-hmm. Because I'm thinking like they also say, oh. Um, Different roles, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, presumably, everyone has a different office, a different role. But it seems like the gift of prophecy, even if it is limited to the uh, to that age, yeah, uh, is something that anyone, any body part, can do. do. I don't know if that's. I mean, even even in our church, is that really true? Like, can anybody teach? Um, To some degree, yeah. To some degree. But um, we also recognize like a special office of teaching, right. um, and and so in that sense, I think, and we restrict the office to teaching at least in the Presbyterian Church to godly men, right? So you know, I guess I yeah, I think your point. I take your point, which is that there is a kind of diffuser gift, a gifts you can exhibit gifts, but not have the office. But then, how does that? Or how is that like uh, advancing a continuation argument, or just an observation? Well, I guess it's more of an observation. So it would it would also seem that if you were to apply it specifically to prophecy, mm-hmm. it seems like prophecies aren't just limited to you know very grand or very major events or uh, you know building up. It could also just be uh, one person, one one church member encouraging another church member. Yeah, I I would press against that idea of prophecy is just encouraging somebody. Um, all the examples that we have in the New Testament where we see it's it's prophecy, they were these grand redemptive historical epic moments, right? So you have the daughters of Agabus. They they prophesied there was going to be a famine throughout the Roman Empire. That was very important because it talked about the development of the church, the, the collection of money for Jerusalem. And so we don't see prophecy used in that way. I mean, we hear about encouraging one another, build one another up, but then prophecy is a different category. Like you said earlier, um, prophecy, though not limited to the, 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 the predictive futures, is a declaration of what someone hears from God directly to bring to the people. Yeah, I think you can always preface prophecy by saying, yeah. thus saith the Lord. Yeah. So therefore, the encouraging one another is not a, is not a declaration of what I hear directly from God. It, it, it may be a, a thought or uh, something I've read to encourage one another, but it's not something. It's not what the apostles heard directly from Christ and brought to the people in the day of Pentecost. Yeah, I mean, there's also another strain of that. For example, um, there was a lot of uh, there's in the Reformed tradition, people would say preaching is prophecy, so the prophecy continues through preaching, and I suppose you could say that. So I guess, like, as a kind of creative compromise with continuationists. I can concede that these things do continue, which is you can encourage people, you can get impressions from God, you can feel God leading you. But then do you have to use the word prophecy to, to describe it? Like, can you, 
can you give me back that word <laughs> so that I keep it here, you know? <laughs> yes? But I go back to that point First 1 Corinthians 14.3, where it says that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And so doesn't, isn't that saying that prophecy can be used for you? When you say, thus saith the Lord, it encourages people. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, it's, 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 yeah, I don't think it's a subset. Encouragement is a subset of prophecy, but it's not, not all encouragement is prophecy and all prophecy is encouragement. Yeah. Is there going to be part three? No. Okay. I'm going to get to healing, right? So let me do healing in five minutes. Um, all right, so what about the gift of healing? There is, what I've said about prophecy in tongues, I think it's much stronger, the exegetical case for it, for why it ceased. Less strong for healing. I would point to 2 Corinthians 12, 12 again. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. I think it's pretty obvious and clear. Miraculous healings were part of the apostolic signs. Let me say this. When continuationists talk about gift of healing, they're talking about things like somebody has palsy and then they can like suddenly walk or something. Um, but they're not talking about the kind of healings that I see in the New Testament. And let me give you two examples. The rising from the dead of Tabitha and, and Eutychius. Okay, so I have those two passages and I wish we could read them, but I'm not because I'm not I don't have time. But the rising of, of, of Tabitha and Eutychius were the kinds of healings that demonstrated the apostles have authorization from God. So I want to see rising from the dead if this healing, this uh, gift of healing has continued. Now people always re- respond, well, does, does that mean God doesn't heal anymore? Absolutely God heals. But God doesn't heal in a miraculous apostolic way. Well, let me take out the word miraculous. He doesn't heal in the kind of spectacular way that was used in the, along with the apostles and Jesus. But he heals through other means. I absolutely do believe in miracles. So if you have some kind of illness, you can pray for God to heal you, and God God may heal you. That's in his sovereign power. And maybe you'll be healed in a way that medicine doesn't understand, or maybe you'll be healed through medicine. right? But not like Tabitha and Eutychius. Like if somebody here you know, falls asleep because I'm so boring, like what happened to Eutychius? I'm not going to say, by the power of the Spirit, <laughs> rise up, you know. I'm going to accept that you're dead. <laughs> you will rise again when Christ comes back. But um, that's what I will say to you. Um, is there any questions about that? Yes, Dorothy. Yeah. Um, so you, you said a lot um, that, you know, there's no possession that requires intuition and inference. I'm wondering, what are the practical, my favorite question, what are the practical implications? Because I feel like it's kind of been all like this theological, academic, like, yeah. But for somebody who's actually experienced the power of the Spirit, yeah. they're saying like what Eric said last week about being a you know, Muslim country, like yeah. envisioning God. And for for us, I won't use us because I'm actually not a uh, sententious uh, citizen always. Um, but for somebody who believes all this, to say to that person, well, actually, that's just your experience. It's not biblical. Like, I feel like that is... Um, I wouldn't use the word devastating, but it definitely, like, is not... Invalidates their experience, yeah. 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 So I, I wouldn't say that. I would... I, I would say... what you're saying. <laughs> it's not biblical. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, like, what are the practical implications of that? Like, 
Well, I, I, no, because in the, in the setting of the classroom, I would say, let's talk about scripture, you know. Um, but I would say this, the value of cessationism is this. I think cessationism elevates scripture, the authority and sufficiency of scripture. And I think the tendency of continuationism is that it diminishes scripture. Because you're, because continuationism says God is still speaking today. And if God is still speaking today, then His Word hasn't ended. It's not once and for all in Scripture. There are new things to be revealed. And so a lot of times you'll have people say, God is saying a new thing today. But when you say God is saying a new thing, it diminishes what He has already said and the finality and the totality and sufficiency of what He has So I think as a cessationist for me, it makes me more dependent on Scripture and it also makes me not look for like these spectacular things, it makes me happy with the ordinary ministry of the church. But can we not elevate scripture and at the same time elevate the spirit? You know what I mean? I understand yeah. we don't want like the chaos of everybody speaking in tongues and you know rising from the dead. But at the same time <laughs> I'm happy with rising from the dead. <laughs> but at the same time, like I feel like like how Jesus didn't do miracles in his hometown mm. because nobody would believe him. I feel like a lot of these gifts, you know, whatever, I'm just categorizing it all together. Mm-hmm. Like, God isn't, you know, providing, you know, miracles um, for us to eat because, hello, we, you know, go buy our own food now or whatever. So that's not a necessary miracle. But then if I'm, like, about to starve to death and, you know, God provides through some miraculous, like... Like manna from heaven? Not manna from heaven, but, like, um, you know, you hear stories of missionaries where, like, you know, there's no food for kids in the orphanage and then somebody just comes by and says, oh, hey, I got an extra delivery of bread or, you know, whatever. Yeah, so I believe in that. I just don't think that's what the apostles were doing. The apostles weren't saying, oh, we don't have enough money to make budget this month, but let's pray. Somebody just send a random check. Wow. What the apostles did, so I feel like what continuationists do diminish what the apostles were doing. The, the miracles that were happening during the apostolic age were so amazing that it was not even denied by non-believers. They attributed it to Satan, right? And so that's what we need to see. We need to see something so amazing that people are saying, this is not of God, this is of Satan. And then Jesus has to say, well, you know, can Satan be divided against himself in a strong man parable and so forth? So I, I, I think like in the end what happens is a continuation in order to hold on to the book of Acts has to kind of like whittle it down to a kind of like very diminished, weak book of Acts. I just think the book of Acts is the book of Acts, and now we're in something else. But you can still see the magnification of the of the, the gifts, uh, such as the gift of tongues. Right? Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I was looking at a, a Acts chapter 2 again. It's an amazing account of how right after the day of Pentecost, on that day, they begin to speak, and the people are wondering, how is it that each of us hear them in our own Right. Time? Amazing. Right? right. Totally magnified. And to speak to the practicality of it, you don't have the practicality or the need for tongues today. Why? Because I have Google. <laughs> well, so that's a practical argument. I, I would make a different argument than that. That I think that's a legitimate argument to make. But I think the gift of tongues was uniquely given for the apostolic age. For the time, for the purpose of the gospel going out in a place where there are dozens of different languages that God was going to give and save during 
the time of Pentecost, so they can go out to their lands and nations and then bring the gospel and evangelize to their families. It had a really particular purpose. Today, I could actually sit in a Filipino in a Filipino message and be able to listen, hear it, have my phone listen to the message while yeah. translating it for me in English. Yeah. Well, I've heard one argument: the gift of tongues continues. You just have to go to language school, right? <laughs> and I just want to say, so I just want to say, like, 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 that's fine. That is a gift in a way, but can you not use the word gift of tongues to describe that? Um, I guess that's what I would... Yes, Matt. Uh, I also wanted to kind of raise the point where does prophecy really have to um, be on the level of Scripture? Hmm. Because, you know, know, uh, Scripture also says that, you know, um, there are people who prophecy, but they don't necessarily say what they prophesied about, mm-hmm. which makes it suggest that it's not necessarily... Yeah, so not all prophecy was transcribed into Scripture, right. but all prophecy has the same weight and authority as Scripture, is what I would argue. And we don't see a counterexample of that in the New Testament, or the Old Testament, where prophecy has a lower level authority than Scripture itself. Absolutely. So we need the gift of languages. So we haven't gone to the end of the earth. I, I addressed that. I wish I had more time to do that. So in a representative way, we have reached the ends of the earth. That's the way uh, Luke writes in Acts. So I would point you to, for example, um, Acts chapter... Um, look up... Where is it? Um... No, Acts 13.47. Look up Acts 13.47. We have already reached the ends of the earth. Paul reached it. The apostles reached it. In a representative way. They didn't know about New Guinea. But they reached it in that sense. So, the mission of the apostles has been complete. That's my answer. Not a very satisfying... Huh? The ends of the earth in a representative way. Whenever the Bible uses the the word world, it uses the word world in two ways. The fullness, all human beings, and a representative. So did Jesus come to die for the world or the world? You know? Are we supposed to preach to the ends of the world or the world? Different ways to use the word world. Yeah. Alright, let me, yes, Eric. Troublemaker! (laughs) So, you know this, uh, sharp divide that you're making about redemptive history endings? My, my question is, what about, like, demon possession? Do, like, I understand, like, see, so you'd say that there's no more, like, Oh, Satan is a lie. He's, he's wily. He's at work. Is he possessing? I would say our culture is possessed by Satan. If you look at, you know, the humanization of people, if you look at, um, um, just how women are treated, minorities are treated, there's satanic possession. But is it like this? Yeah. No. So, but why has Satan seized working in the same way? So we talked about that in the book of Revelation, Satan's bound. He's, Satan's been already defeated. So he's weak right now. He's weak, but you know what he is? He's a ti- he's a lion, but he's a wounded ti- lion. That's a very dangerous beast, but he's wounded, mortally wounded. So is the cessationist view tied with that view of millennialism? It all beautifully fits together into a system. Yes. Now you understand, young. <laughs> all right, let's let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for Scripture. Even when we disagree, thank you so much that we have this beautiful. Um, text that we can study endlessly. There's riches, layers, 
And I pray that we would study it in a way that builds one another up, that holds on to unity, that encourages each, each other, never, um, never attacking, never diminishing other believers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Let's begin. Can we turn on the lights? All right. I want to welcome everyone. I'm Pastor Michael. Um, I want to welcome especially the visitors. If you're here visiting today, um, you're welcome here in our church. We have a visitor card in the back of the bulletin. And if you give us your name and email, we'll be glad to contact you and connect with you. We're going to look at the um, order of worship. We're going to begin with the order of worship. And in Psalm 104, um, it's talking about the greatness and the glory of God. Okay. Hello? Is there a difference? All right. (laughs) So we're talking about the uh, call to worship. And in Psalm 104, we're talking about the, the great, it's talking about the greatness and the glory of God. And if you look at the second line, this is what it says to, to help us to understand how great and how powerful He is. When God looks, even looks on the earth, it trembles. When God touches the mountains, they smoke. And you know, the earth and the mountains was pretty much the most immovable, massive, monstrous thing that ancient peoples could imagine. And God just so much as even brushes it, and it can crumble and, and, and fall apart. And I think, you know, we modern people, we have an even greater capacity to understand the scope of God's power. In Psalm 147, it says that God has determined the number of stars, and He calls them each by name. You know, when you look out into the night, well, we don't, we can't, but if you go out into nature, right, and you look out into the night sky, there's about 10,000 stars that you can visibly see. And when you look at it, it's so amazing that God created all of those stars, especially, He knows them by name. But we in the modern world, do you know what we know? 
It's estimated that it's about 200 million, maybe 300 million stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And it's estimated that there's about a, a trillion galaxies in the universe. Do you know how many stars there truly are? It's unimaginable. The, 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 the number billion is just beyond human capacity to comprehend. Or think about all the, 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 the creatures that God created. You know, the ancient world, they had no idea that there were sea creatures deep in the ocean. Fantastical creatures. Why did God create them? Not for ancient people, but for us to know how great God's creative abilities are. Why did he create microscopic beings that only now we, we know and discover? God is great. God is truly glorious. And so what should our response be? It says in the third line, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. That should be our response. And so will the congregation please rise as I read the part of the leader and you, you will read the part of the people. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, we truly do not comprehend how great, how big you truly are. And Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we could see the miracle of life. Every ray of sunshine, every breath that we draw, these are gifts from your hands. And let us marvel that you condescended. You became a man. You lived and walked among us. And you suffered with us. And then you suffered death that we might have eternal life. We pray that the response of our heart would be to praise you and to worship you. But we confess that our hearts are so weak. They're so tepid and, and, and unfeeling. Would you help us to see your glory? Would you help us to sing with all of our might? To do you justice. That you are great. We confess and repent of our weak singing. We pray that we would sing with all our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Let's go, let's go to the back. Okay. My name is our God.